0: Listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLennathan. And I'm Wade Bearden. And Kevin, I am really excited about this week's episode. You know, Wade, I've been wanting to tell you this for a while, but I gotta say, your opinions are always right even if they contradict
1: mine. Oh, well, thank you, Kevin. I would like to reciprocate by saying that you are a gentleman and a scholar. Today in the episode, we're going to be talking about the identity-swapping detective story from Spike Lee, Black Klansman. And then we're going to be turning our eyes east for a review of the latest romantic comedy to make a big splash, Crazy Rich Asians. All that's coming up on this episode, episode
0: 166 of Seeing and Believing. How do you
1: propose to make this investigation? Well, I've established contact and created some familiarity with the Klansman over the phone. I'll continue in that role, but I'll need another officer. Surprise, surprise, a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. That's my point exactly. Chief, black Ron Stallworth over the phone, white Ron Stalworth face-to-face, so there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? I believe we can with the right white man. We can do anything.
0: Yes, we are here with episode 166, Kevin. We should probably let our listeners know that I am really Wade and you are Kevin. The people who regularly tune into the show, they probably got the joke. But if it's someone new for the first time listening to us, they probably were like, why is this funny? This is this is not <laughs> funny to me.
1: You, you definitely don't want anybody confusing your dulcet tones for Kevin MacLennethan. That would just be, it would be unfair, and we don't want to confuse any new listeners. We definitely don't.
0: Well, listeners, you just heard a clip from Spike Lee's newest joint, Black Klansman. A little later on in the show, we'll be discussing the romantic comedy, Crazy Rich Asians. But first up is our review of Spike's film. Here's the Black Klansmen*'s official synopsis. It's the early 1970s, and Ron Stallworth, played by John David Washington, is the first African-American detective to serve in the Colorado Springs Police Department. Determined to make a name for himself, Stallworth bravely sets out on a dangerous mission, infiltrate and expose the Ku Klux Klan. The young detective soon recruits a more seasoned colleague, Flip Zimmerman, played by Adam Driver, into the undercover investigation of a lifetime. Together, they team up to take down the extremist hate group as the organization aims to sanitize its violent rhetoric to appeal to the mainstream. This is based on a true story. Now, Kevin, with me being out of town and part of that vacation being in the wilderness, as well as some other schedule changes, we're just now getting to this film, even though it's been out for a few weeks. So I'm just going to begin with a basic simple question. In your opinion, is our Black Klansman review worth the
1: wait? I I would like to think so. I'm pretty bullish on the film in general. I was a little bit disappointed by Spike's uh, previous film, Chirac, so it was nice to see, I don't know, kind of a return to form, I guess you could say, with Black Klansman. I think that this is a film that gives the viewer a lot to chew on. And there's an energy running through it that was in Chirac, but I didn't know that uh, Lee was able to harness it as effectively as I would have liked in that film. But in Black Klansman, I feel like he does. This is a, this is a film that is electric in the way that it makes the audience uncomfortable and in the way it kind of plays with different tones to both allow us to laugh at the Ku Klux Klan and also be chilled by them at the same time. And the fact that Lee is able to pull off that balancing act uh, with such finesse shows why he's still such a noteworthy director in America, you know, even, you know, decades into his career. So I I thought it was a pretty strong film. What did you think?
0: I really liked it. I I thought it was a a very, very good film, probably even a great film. And you... You hit on it, Kevin, when you talked about his ability to kind of move us around as an audience. At times, this film is, it's really funny and outlandish, and it's also horrific. And then there are sections where it feels like a detective cat and mouse game, and then there are some action sequences. So we're kind of moving everywhere. And Spike Lee, I, I haven't seen many of his films but he's pretty bold in that way. This is the first film from him that I've seen in a while where he balances that and he manages that up and down, the twist and turn very, very well. And I, I appreciate how he is not so subtle in the typical Spike Lee fashion. But he also understands here that there are some complex questions and some issues going on and there are different ways that people attack those issues. And and two, I'm interested in seeing this movie a second time because there are some subtle performances and some moves that I think will will kind of bubble to the surface with a second viewing, particularly Adam Driver's character and how he, he... genuinely wants to bust this group wide open at the same time he kind of laughs at some racist jokes and he's he's kind of this this character who is not necessarily overtly racist but is affected by racism and I think those points are some of the stronger points in the movie particularly the more subtle parts I think are are even some of the strongest, but yeah, a a really good film overall.
1: Yeah, Driver is uh, very good in this film, and he certainly. I think in some ways he has the most difficult role to play because as uh, Flip, the partner of our protagonist, Ron Stallworth, he's the guy who's actually going into these clan meetings, right? And he, despite his Jewish herita- his character's Jewish heritage, um, he still has to convincingly portray a racist anti-Semite and... Driver's ability to kind of walk that line where we can see the wheels turning in his character's head as he kind of calculates, you know, how far over the line he has to step in order to play a racist convincingly. And yet also trying to Kind of hold, pull himself back so that he doesn't sort of tumble headlong into this well of hatred there's a really interesting thing that this film does overall in exploring the power of language just the 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 frisson you get from watching flip in a Get together with a bunch of other clan members, and the racial slurs are flying fast and furious. The blatant hatred, the the wishes to do physical harm or even to murder African Americans—it's all flying thick and fast. And Lee is able to make that genuinely transgressive and uncomfortable in ways that um, maybe some some other films haven't. Not because. That kind of language isn't shocking, but because in this film, Lee is able to put those words into the mouth of basically the audience surrogate, and not just the audience surrogate, but a member of one of the groups that the clan hates so much. And in doing so, he he kind of he gives that transgressive language, a kick to it that you don't really see when you're just watching a film and it's only the obviously racist villain characters who are saying those kinds of words. And you you're able to maintain a little bit of distance from it and, you know, think, well, you know, they're they're the bad guys, so of course they're talking like bad guys. And Black Klansman, he has a hero, he puts those words into a hero's mouth. And even though the hero is doing it to play a role, the application of those words to an audience surrogate really brings home the just how hateful that stuff is because we like to maintain a little bit of distance from that language we like to think of ourselves as not being even in the slightest susceptible to those sorts of emotions and lee takes away that comfortable remove and i think that's one of the strengths of the film yeah and two i was surprised in that he digs into
0: what makes these members within the KKK tick. What are some of their arguments? So instead of simply just concentrating on, on the most aggressive and hateful sections of their personality, what do they do to defend themselves? And I think by, by dealing with that, we're faced with the question of, well, well, What do we say to defend our own actions? So I think it's powerful in that sense. And then two, there are some characters in the KKK that when portrayed, it it almost approaches empathy. So I'm thinking of one character played by Ryan Eggold. It's Walter. He's kind of the head of this chapter in the beginning part of the film. And he's genuinely the the cool-headed person in the group, he doesn't want violence and there are moments when he's almost nice in a way and I felt like Spike portraying his character and some other characters in that way uh, helped us to kind of realize the many shapes and sizes that racism can can take. It's not just the country bumpkin. Uh, or the town drunk. There are many shades. And of course, that's that's what Spike Lee is saying, too, as it relates to David Duke's character and his mission to, quote-unquote, make the KKK or m- make white supremacy more respectable. And I felt like there were some very important moments within this. And I think maybe that goes back to some of the subtler points within a film that's overall not that subtle. And this really feels like Lee is kind of working at all cylinders here.
1: And this gets back to uh something that I mentioned a little bit earlier about how he portrays the the KKK members in this film. Is he doesn't he he doesn't make them wholly uh respectable I guess to to use a word that that you used he doesn't allow us to sort of be lulled by them to thinking oh well they're just regular folks who just have a few flaws no these are genuinely uh, uh appalling people at least in terms of the ideology that they adhere to, but Lee is able to sketch them in in different ways to portray the the different kinds of facets that that kind of ideology can take so for instance, there's uh, one character who's kind of the stereotypical when when we think of the stereotypical clan member, this guy is it right like he's he's obviously not the sharpest tool in the shed. He speaks in this drawl that kind of is almost a universal cinematic language for uh, a guy who doesn't think too hard about things. And he's comical because despite all of his obvious shortcomings, he thinks of himself as so superior to members of other races. And so that's that's funny, and Lee has a lot of fun playing with the disconnect between those two things. But then there's another character who is also uh, more... You know, not not as respectable, quote unquote, as somebody like Duke or Walter, but he's not an idiot. You know, he's he's definitely more virul- virulently hateful, but he's not stupid, and he's a little bit frightening. Uh, and then you have obviously the the character Topher's, Topher Grace's depiction of Duke and Walter, as you already mentioned, who are you know they they seem more or less like normal guys until you start talking to them, and then you know this this hatred kind of shows itself in some really shocking ways and lee he doesn't let us. Again, he doesn't let us slide into this comfortable remove where it's kind of a movie racism that we're able to sort of gloss over in our in our minds. It's something that he forces us to stand and contend with. And especially given the, the ending of this film, standing con- and contending with this kind of white supremacist ideology is really what Lee ultimately wants to do with this film. And I want to get to some of the biblical
0: imagery in the movie. There are, of course, all these clan members, and periodically we see Bibles on their bookshelves behind them, around them. They'll mention God, and Spike Lee shows how they subvert or misinterpret Christian imagery for their own benefit. So, Two of the kind of reoccurring images or ideas here are water and fire. And it brings to mind in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist talks about a baptism in water, regeneration, and a baptism in fire, a baptism of judgment. And we see these racist characters, or we hear about these racist characters, and they've twisted those up to their own ends, and they've misinterpreted Portions of the Bible, and they use, in literal ways, fire to bring about judgment. And we have this very eerie baptism sequence with the clan members where they use water to symbolize purity or regeneration. And this film, and Lee particularly here, seems to long for those interpretations or that imagery to be reclaimed or made right again so there's this really great scene where a couple of the characters are talking Washington's characters talking to his his girlfriend and behind them is this this waterfall and water kind of plays a prominent role in that scene in terms of the sound and the imagery and it brings to mind the passage in Amos right that, Martin Luther King Jr. mentioned that justice would roll down. And then later we see the fire imagery turn itself around on our villains. And so it's fascinating to watch the biblical imagery uh, be reclaimed or this cry that it would be reclaimed and the idea too that that's still a fight. That's still a process, and that kind of works its way out near the very end, one of the final shots of the film. And so I, I found that to be just very insightful and very artistic and, and very kind of important as we wrestle with these really kind of deep themes of how people use the Bible and how they use Christianity and how they still do to, to promote racism.
1: For Lee, the 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 competing ideologies in this film aren't merely political, and I think that that's very interesting. The way that there are many scenes throughout this film where there's a character speaking. So there's there's an early scene where uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, now going by the name Kwame Ture, is speaking to a black student union, and Lee. Intercuts shots of Teray speaking at the podium with these uh, meta shots of of the audience's faces looking up at Teray and and listening to him and kind of letting his affirmation of their black identity sort of wash into them. And it's it's a, it's a very spiritual scene, uh, and it suggests that there's an intermingling of what is at once political justice, but also a deep s- spiritual need on the part of these listeners to be recognized and to be able to be fully themselves without being oppressed by white supremacy. Similarly, there's that scene that you mentioned where there's this uncanny baptism of the new clan members, where after the baptism, they all sit together and they watch birth of a nation. And mm-hmm. they're it's almost like a, a, Big tent revival vibe, almost. They're 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 cheering on the clan members in that film as they they chase down a a black character, and it's again the the fervor isn't merely it's not solely political or or an ideology sapped of spirituality. No, there there's definitely a, a religious fervor in that scene, and Lee uses. Those scenes sprinkled throughout the movie to suggest that the things that we believe, the ideology that we adhere to, there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. And when we internalize it, it doesn't just affect the way we vote or the sorts of organizations that we we support in the public sector. It it has an effect on the soul itself, which circling back around to the scenes where Driver's character infiltrates the clan— that makes those scenes so much more tense because you sense that being around these virulent racists is corrosive not just to some you know abstract sense of justice but it's corrosive to driver's character simply to have to exist in that Space And breathe that air for a little while. And there's a scene where he actually speaks about how simply being around such people has caused him to really think much more about his own Jewish identity and what that means on a deeper level to him as a person. It's, It's really interesting the way that... Lee plays with uh, the idea of the spiritual effects of ideology on the person.
0: No, that's that's well said and I love that scene with Driver where he kind of deals with that and wrestles with that. And so this film too becomes about identity as a whole and that's important. The scene where the characters are watching The Birth of a Nation, it's it's a horror movie at that point which goes back to what we talked about, and how Lee is able to kind of mix these different emotions within the same movie. Now, going back to the idea, too, of media, because we did talk about The Birth of a Nation, the film opens with that beautiful crane shot from Gone with the Wind. There's mass carnage. Confederate soldiers are wounded. One of the main characters in the film is kind of walking through them. And this is a movie that seems to be talking about movies and making the point that how we depict characters in certain groups of people in media can affect how we view them and how our country has been shaped by the media that we consume. And that's important in terms of past films, but also as you kind of think about that, you wonder, well, what does that have to do now with casting and with those films that are promoted and which characters are placed in these movies? And I love just kind of exploring that and thinking through that and really challenging myself as well to think about how I understand the medium of film. And how the medium of film can change the way we see other people. Uh, conversely, there's also a conversation about black exploitation films with Washington's character. And the question of what those depictions did in terms of us seeing African-American men and women. And Spike Lee does what he's done in the past in that he takes some vibes from exploitation cinema and some style notes and kind of makes them their own. So there's this almost meta quality to the film in that it's mixing all these ideas of medium and movies and film and helping us to think about what we are consuming and how that it's affecting us and the way that we view the people around us.
1: Lee even plays with the the ways that, um, that media affect self-image as well and how self-presentation becomes kind of its own form of communication in a similar way. So we haven't talked really enough about Washington's performance in this film. I think he's very good Mm -hmm. as – Ron Stallworth, and there's this great touch that Washington does a couple of times throughout the film, where uh, his character throughout the film sports this, you know, this this big afro, and uh, there are a couple of conversations he has where, uh, you know, a white character tries to get him to, you know, cut down his afro, whereas a black character kind of sees that as a reflector of his commitment to uh justice for uh the the African Americans in their community, so even just the way he he presents himself uh is a, itself kind of like a a almost a media communication of the self like the self as media. But Washington does this great thing with that Afro. A couple of times where he reaches up with his hands and he kind of pats at his Afro a little bit, pats it down, feels at it whenever he's about to head into an uncomfortable situation. It's almost as if he's there. there's a reticence on his part to, to really let his full self out to play. He, he kind of feels almost as if he's trying to contain his identity for a specific task. He feels nervous about going into a police station, sporting this afro, and so he kind of reaches up and he pats it very gingerly. And it's just this great little acting moment where Washington's able to suggest that Stallworth, even though he is very proud of his heritage, he doesn't feel entirely at home in this primarily white world as the first black police officer in Colorado Springs. And I think that that shows again Lee's sensitivity to the way that images and self images and the way we project ourselves to others, that too it can be a way of entrenching white supremacy or of of tearing it down and trying to substitute something more just in its place. And again, it's it's those little touches that make this uh, a, a pretty good film.
0: I like what A.O. Scott says. He says, one of the main questions of the movie is, is it better to work inside the system to push against it from the outside or to smash it to pieces? And I think that Spike Lee has been working through that idea through his films. Is it better to be outside the system to smash it or to to go at it from the inside? And that's what these characters are Are doing here. Well, that's a review of Black Klansmen, and it is currently playing in theaters all around the country. If you have not seen it yet, we want to encourage you to let us know what you thought about the movie. Make sure to tweet us at C Believe Pod on Twitter at C Believe P O D, or email us a longer note if you would like at Seeing and Believing C A P C. At gmail.com. Don't go anywhere, we'll be reviewing crazy rich Asians here in just a
1: minute. (laughs)
0: By Gordon Victor. We want to say a big thanks to everyone who's taken the time and the cash to support us on Patreon. It's really great. We just had another donation come in today. So I am super pumped, super grateful for that. If you've supported us on Patreon, make sure to get your dedications in. We want to dedicate a show to you. And as always, we got some goodies coming your way here in the future. Kevin, we have this really great Patreon campaign goal or pledge area level. It's the what can you buy for $5 level, and... Kevin, I wanted to ask you, hypothetically speaking, what, what could someone buy for, for $5?
1: For $5, you could get a skull that you can just place on a bookshelf nearby or maybe on your desk while you work, and the skull's purpose is just to remind you of the fleeting nature of all life on Earth. So
0: is this a real skull, or is this like a, like a handmade one or maybe a plastic one?
1: All all skulls of this type are completely artisanal, made by hand. So it didn't actually come from any living being that I know of. Hmm. But you know, it it is been, it has been crafted with loving care. So okay. you can be you can rest assured that your five dollars is being well spent. Okay. Yeah. So not a real skull.
0: Wink, wink. But uh, $5. <laughs> if you want to support us on Patreon, get at that $5 level. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast. Really easy. Once again, patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast.
1: Yeah, we also want to remind all of our listeners that they can become members of com, who graciously host our podcast and uh, have a lot of other great stuff up on the site as well. And that's something else that you can get for $5 is a membership to the site. You get access to... Uh, a members only forum, and you get access also to members only offerings. So, ebooks or music albums that are downloadable for free f- just for members. So, it's a really great deal. And, Wade, the reason I had skulls on the brain is because I just was reading about the latest member offering that went up today, actually. It's Matthew McCullough's new book called Remember Death. And uh, Rachel Rion had a great write-up of it on the site. She summarizes it this way. She says, Matthew McCullough's new book, Remember Death, explores how becoming reacquainted with the reality of numbered days can be a spiritual discipline that also enables us to become more acutely aware of the works and promises of Christ. As a spiritual practice, remembering death finds its origins in the Christian reflective tradition of memento mori. In becoming intimately conscious of death, both its certainty and its effects, we live more joyful, true, and hopeful lives because Christ's promises also become just as imminent and certain. So some pretty heady stuff there, but it sounds really wonderful. And that is a book that if you become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, you can get for free. So that's much more that much more time that you can do to contemplate your own mortality. Listeners, if you would like to become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, make sure to visit
0: Christ forward slash subscribe. Christ and forward slash subscribe
1: Rachel these people aren't just rich okay they're crazy rich look there's new money all over Asia we got the Beijing billionaires the Taiwan tycoons but the young family they're old money rich they had money when they left China in the 1800s and they went all the way down here not there here they came to Singapore when there was nothing but jungle and pig farmers it was a snake here eating an apple you know what I mean and they built all of this. Now, they're the landlords of the most expensive city in the world. These people are so posh and snobby, they're snoshy. Ew. Yeah, but Nick's not like that. Even if he isn't, I guarantee you the family is. Which is why tonight, you need to not look like Sebastian of the Little Mermaid. Welcome back to the second half of our show. And, Wade, yeah, it's fair to mention that our episode last week where we kind of did a retrospective on the movies of 2008, including The Dark Knight... While that was a a popular episode, we did get some feedback about it that took us to task a little bit, which I think was a, was pretty fair. Kenny Miles tweeted us to say, "I think there are too many great movies in theaters to spend a week doing a retro review. The Miseducation of Cameron Post, Crazy Rich Asians, Puzzle, and especially Minding the Gap now on Hulu are worth reviewing." So he, he Kenny brings up a good point that. While we did have a good time reviewing the 2008 films, we did kind of, you know, skip over some pretty notable film entries. So, Kenny, thanks for your feedback. We are going to rectify that now with our review of *Crazy Rich Asians*. Wade, are are you ready for this?
0: I I am ready. I'm always ready for a good rom com. So.
1: Buckle up. Here we go. (laughs) Well, Well, we'll talk about that soon enough. Crazy Rich Asians follows a character named Rachel Chu, played by Constance Wu of the TV series Fresh Off the Boat, as she accompanies her longtime boyfriend, Nick, to his best friend's wedding in Singapore. She's also surprised to learn that Nick's family is extremely wealthy and that he's considered one of the country's most eligible bachelors. ...thrust into the spotlight, Rachel must now contend with jealous socialites, quirky relatives, and something far, far worse... Nick's disapproving mother. So obviously, Wade, this is the, the stakes are high for this film. And it's been getting a lot of buzz, obviously, as Kenny pointed out, uh, not least because it is the first American film since 1993's The Joy Luck Club to have an almost all-Asian cast. That's a quarter of a century, for those of you keeping score out there. My question for you, Wade, is did you find that dimension of the film? It's all-Asian cast. It's setting in a very specific cultural milieu to inform the romantic comedy genre in especially interesting ways for you. Or did you find it to be more of just a standard rom-com experience?
0: Well, I, I think overall it, it is kind of a standard rom-com that's probably better than average. I'll say that. I will say this, though, that the setting, the story, the, the cast— are all kind of built into the plot, so you can't really separate it. Because at at the core, this is a movie about head and heart, about individualism and family values. And we're exploring a culture that's in many ways very different from America and from our stark individualism here. And so how does that work in relationships? And how are these characters going to navigate the cultural clash that this story incites. So that to me was probably the most new and exciting thing about this film. And it's similar in some ways to the territory that we find in the big sick from last year, the idea of two different cultures, two different types of families, two different types of people uh, forming a relationship and and seeing how far Love can take them. Pure love can take them. And then when do <laughs> the circumstances of life kind of pull them apart?
1: Yeah, you know, I went I have to confess, Wade, I went into this film being a little bit skeptical. Not necessarily for uh any particular reason other than that. I'm not much of a modern rom-com guy. I tend to be when it comes to romantic comedies, the older ones tend to be better like Golden Age. You know, if if Barbara Stanwyck's in it, I'm all there. Modern <laughs> rom-coms tend to leave me cold as often as not. So I went into this one with an amount of healthy skepticism, and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I don't think that it really reinvents the wheel as far as the genre is concerned. I think it it hits a lot of expected beats and a lot of the maybe we can call it lifestyle porn of of the genre is still intact of course you have absurdly good-looking people and they all are you know have for the purposes of this movie infinite wealth and part of the fun and escapism of the film is just looking at all the opulence that surrounds them and kind of enjoying the fantasy of it a little bit but i do think that beyond those aspects Director John Chu, working from the book by Kevin Kwan, does some interesting things in, in finding new angles on the material, I guess. As I was watching that, I kind of found that there's a lot of Jane Austen in this film in terms of the way it uses the drama of marriage to explore questions of gender roles, questions of class and the the conflicts and tensions that arise from those things. And although I don't know that I would necessarily put this up on the level of Austin, I think for what it is, it it has a lot of interesting uh perspectives on those those themes.
0: I it does explore this question. I, I kind of wish that it would have dug a little deeper. And I think part of it is this it is a big blockbuster movie. And we we gotta keep going. We gotta keep kind of pushing. We do have to have, like you mentioned, that lifestyle porn. These people are very very rich, and so part of the goal of this movie, I think, is for people to walk out and be like, "Oh, it must be really fun to be rich, right?" And that's kind of what you're thinking. Take take it as it is, right? A good or bad thing. Uh, you do walk out saying, "Okay, that lifestyle seems you know pretty pretty interesting." It it isn't. You've got mail, okay? Right? That's like my favorite rom com of the last, like, 30 years. Uh, there are some tropes and clichés that we see here that are in other rom-coms. So, for instance, the cliché of a character getting ready for a date or a big event, and people are helping to make them over, and they come out in all these different outfits, and the, the people helping them uh, to get dressed are like, no, or yes, you know, and it's all, you know, kind of funny. And those those types of scenes are here, I think a couple of the ways that this film does stand out is you've got a main character played by Constance Wu, Rachel's character. She is not this kind of bumbling, slapstick, romantic comedy lead that we see in so many romantic comedies. She's very smart. She's intelligent, and she seems to make pretty pretty good choices. She acts like a normal human being would in those types of situations. And I think those types of characters throughout the film make this feel a bit grounded while at the same time it is a bit fantastical with all the extravagance and all the wealth and all of the general plot themes and points that go on with with a romantic comedy like this one.
1: Yeah, there's I agree with you that there there are some things that are uh, they feel a little bit hackneyed, and one wishes that as you're watching it, the surrounding material is strong enough that you don't know why they had to, you know, have yet another, you know, trying on the dresses montage, or have a character who basically exists just to be the, again, the sassy gay best friend. You know, I mean, those things are genre tropes for a reason because they are sort of like. It, to some extent, they're they're expected, but on the other hand, there's so much else about this that is that is interesting. Simply for how it refreshes the rom com genre, that to see it fall into those more expected beats is is a little bit disappointing. But I do think that once you uh, weed out those other aspects or maybe look past them. There's a lot to like about this. I think that John Chu has a really good eye. There's a wedding scene in in this film uh, that's not exactly the climax. It precedes the climax by a little bit where the entire uh, building that the wedding is taking place in is kind of made to look like a rice paddy with you know at dusk with insects floating around lightning bugs and whatnot and it's a genuinely beautiful scene partly because chu has such a a finely attuned eye for how to shoot it in a way that is you know maximally gorgeous and that counts for a lot in a in a film like this where it is interested in surfaces not just as how they can conceal uh, dysfunction beneath the surface, but also how surfaces can elevate a gathering and how uh, beauty does bring to the fore the good things that are already there. And I think that scenes like that do a whole lot to suggest that. So even even if you're the sort of person who kind of, might roll your eyes a little bit at uh, materialism in a in a mainstream film like this. I think Chu is sensitive enough to the ways that he uses that that there's some interest to be had there as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's the subtle parts of this film that really, I think, make it pop. And that scene that you mentioned, it's, it's not subtle. It's, it is beautiful. But how Chu uses it. So earlier in the film, you have uh, Nick Young, his mother— is having this Bible study with family members, and they read a passage about uh, set you know set your thoughts on things that are above, and it's kind of funny because this is a family that does have a lot of money, that lives extravagantly, and that image matters, and so there's some tongue in cheek there with that wedding scene. What is fascinating and, and you'll miss it if you don't catch it. It actually takes place in a church and in a wide shot facing the the front of the stage, you can see some stained glass and some church decor kind of behind the set that was placed in front of it. And there's mention about uh, Methodists being able to spend more money on weddings and things like that. There's kind of this joke. And some of those images, I felt like were, were Chu kind of saying, okay, that taking place in a church and these people are studying the bible but there is so much excess that has been added to it this doesn't even look like a church anymore it's become it's become this setting for goddiness in a way and it is beautiful and there is a couple of moments there where we get the sense that we're being told hey in the end it's it's all about the love and it's not about the extravagance. So there are some funny nods there. And then there's a shot. A group of people are flying to a bachelor party on helicopters, and we hear uh, the flight of the Valkyries, right? And so, they are... That's a really fun touch. It's, it's, it's really great, too, and, you know, we're, we're playing with Apocalypse Now, and, you know, those helicopters are going to wreak destruction on the land, and these people are going to wreak destruction on whatever they're going to do during the party. So, there are some really fun, kind of small, even I say subtle touches throughout the film. And then, too, Young's father... He's not seen throughout the whole movie. They they talk about him, and I love how they just suggest that he's off at work, and that's so important. They don't complain about it. They don't make a big deal, but yet his presence is never felt. And so in some ways, this film seems to poke fun at wealth or to critique wealth. Like I said, you don't necessarily walk out saying, oh, yeah, it's really tough, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But it is in some ways a little bit smarter than it lets on.
1: Yeah, well, and Chu and his screenwriters, Peter Chiarelli and Adele Lim, have a lot of fun with, in this East Asian setting, flipping a lot of... uh, American cliches on their head. So obviously, of course, there are the the there, there's the conspicuous consumption that is compared to Donald Trump's bathroom. There's uh, a fun kind of side character played by Ken Jeong of of Community fame, who's basically the most. Detestable nouveau riche bourgeois, you know, like kind of, you know, the the guy that just loves to have a golden house just because he knows it makes him look rich, and he just likes flaunting his wealth. There's also a a really funny line where. Uh, there are these kids who won't eat their dinner and their mom says you know eat eat your food there are starving kids in America who would love to mm-hmm. have that food and it's just such a great little inversion of that old chestnut that you know moms in the 50s would say you know eat your vegetables there are starving kids in China and this film does a great job of just flipping that on its head and it does overall i think it does a great job at exploring how the the romantic comedy functions a little bit differently in an East Asian context, especially in terms of family, in terms of the claims that one's immediate family can make on a person and how that has its own way of complicating Uh, romance again it it kind of harkens back to the austin days where getting married you didn't just do it for love you also had to worry about the economics of the situation you had to worry about whether their parents approved of you You yeah there's all this stuff surrounding the simple uh, romantic union that had to be dealt with and over time that's something that the modern rom-com has kind of lost and then it's mostly just about, well, can these people get together? Can their emotions kind of be brought into alignment? And Crazy Rich Asians recognizes that marriage and and romance isn't just about two individuals. It's about much more than that, and there's a community involved. And that I think might be the, the main reason why Crazy Rich Asians is getting so much uh, praise for the representation of asian americans it's not just to sort of check a diversity box it's something that that culture brings to the genre that was kind of getting underserved in you know mainstream hollywood white culture where the claims of family and that dimension of romance was just completely going unexplored and it's kind of gratifying to see that return and to create its own plot complications that we haven't seen in the genre for a really long time.
0: Yeah, and I would say too I I did mention some of the cliches and the tropes and there are some twists and some creative elements that you've pointed out and and you've done a good job explaining it too. It's it's the idea in American rom-coms, it's do these characters love each other and if they love each other then they're fine. And so what we always get towards The end of the film or at the end of the second act, beginning of the third is something happens and these characters split up. And it just, in many of the recent rom-coms, it just feels so superficial because all of it could have been taken care of in a simple sit-down conversation. Just talk it out, oh, okay, we're not confused anymore, we're fine. But they're trying to build up, why? Because all it takes is love and then everything else is okay. In this story, there's really no doubt that the characters love each other. There's no doubt that they're going to be faithful to each other, or they are faithful to each other. The question is, can their relationship withstand other factors? And that's an important question to consider in our individualistic society. It's, okay, it's all about love. All we need is love, but... Could there be other elements that are also important that require us to assess our relationships and to see, okay, where does family fit? Where do gender roles fit? Where do family responsibilities fit? And the film does take a good look at that. And it doesn't come to some easy conclusion. This film, I I think, is getting a sequel, and there is some territory to be mined in, in the future
1: yeah that actually brings me to another question I was going to ask you uh, this film obviously does leave a lot of room for a sequel and with how successful this film has been it's going to get a sequel that's not even a question I'm curious to know are, are you are you looking forward to the sequel what what else would you be interested in seeing it explore do you think that there's still more ground to cover or do you think that uh, the the sequel is going to kind of be retreading a lot of the same ground? There
0: is, there is ground to cover. Like we said,
1: Nick's father's
0: not in the picture this entire movie. So there, I think there is, uh, it just depends kind of where they take it. Are they going to say, okay, oh, we're going to go to a wedding and we're going to, that's going to be the setting or maybe the main characters have a baby or something and, and that could be explored. I, I don't know. I think, I think the idea of, Relationships fitting within families in life it takes a long time it takes a build up and so I think there is some ground and then just as long as they have uh, Rachel's roommate in the picture played by Aquafina is that how you pronounce her name I think uh, yeah she is really funny so if there's more of her then I I think the film will at least be it'll at least be okay
1: yeah Aquafina was fun in Oceans Eight earlier this year she's a lot of fun in this. Film as well. I mean, overall, with the cast here is is really sturdy. Wu is is of course good. Uh, Nick Young, or sorry. Henry Golding, who who plays her her boyfriend, Nick, is also—you know, it, that would be an easily thankless role. His job would basically be to stand around and look pretty in, in another film. But Henry Golding does a lot to—he brings a lot to that character. And then, of course, we can't go any further without talking about Michelle Yeoh, who is, you know, just probably the brightest star— In in the entire film overall, she's got a a very illustrious career. And I think she does a really wonderful job, again, of taking a character that, at least on the page, would be kind of two-dimensional, would be very easy to make that way. You know, the, the disapproving... Perspective mother in law who's just kind of, she's just going to be mean and her job is to be the obstacle. But Yo, especially in a scene where she speaks to Constance Wu's character about Yo's own experiences with uh with with dealing with a disapproving mother-in-law and she punctuates that with you know a, a kind of a stab in the heart with you will never be enough and she kind of twists it and walks away but yo's delivery of that entire speech suggests that her character also has felt this pull of family and, has, and bears her own scars from trying to measure up to some standard that is practically impossible and the that kind of performance is instrumental to making this film less of a of a standard rom-com and making it something a little bit more interesting than that. I think she's really good in this film. She's definitely great. Well, there will be
0: more Crazy Rich Asians in the future, so let us know what you think of this movie, and who knows, maybe we'll also review the sequel. You can contact us at CBelievePod at CBelievePod on Twitter or seeing and believing, CAPC at gmail.com. Kevin, we have gone through this episode. We've done our two reviews. Now we've reached the point where we're going to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend this week?
1: Well, a few weeks ago, I I think it was earlier this summer at least, I recommended Michael Mann's film Manhunter. Uh, And and I'm kind of going through a a man marathon of, of my own, I guess. I managed to catch up with his first feature film, which is 1981's Thief, starring James Caan. And now this is a first film, so I won't say that... It's perfect. There are some rough edges, and I don't know that it is fully realized in the same way that man's vision in, for example, Heat is realized. But for a first film, it's really stunning how man's vision and kind of an entire aesthetic is almost fully formed in Thief. So this is a film following James Kahn's character. He's a professional safe cracker. And it's basically all about his commitment to a certain level of professionalism and just doing what he's best at and not wanting anything to get in the way of that. Obviously, there are some complications that arise, some nefarious forces wanting to subjugate him to their will. But this is a man film, so of course, James Kahn's character does not go uh, softly into that good night. He fights with everything he has. This is, you know, man's films are all about professionals doing their work best and letting nobody uh, subjugate them. They never knuckle under to another person's will, and that's fully present here in Thief. It's gorgeously, gorgeously shot. And I have to say that as a Chicagoan, it's really great to see Chicago uh, on display in this film. In fact, when we did our episode a long time ago where we talked about uh, our, our favorite hometown films, films that were about the, the, the cities and the surrounding areas that we've claimed as our own homes, I hadn't seen Thief at that point, but Thief would definitely be on that list. It's a great travelogue for Chicago, and... I got a little bit of a thrill from seeing the Green Mill get blown up since I live just a couple of blocks from it. So it's a little special treat for me as well. But even if you don't <laughs> I, live in Chicago, there's still a lot to like about Thief. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that one yet. I did recently
0: watch Manhunter and thought it was really great. I, it probably is my favorite Hannibal Lecter film so far. I've only seen like oh.
1: maybe three of them.
0: I think I like it more that, than uh, Silence of the Lambs. It's really good. That, cool.
1: that is high praise, and I know that you're a really big fan of Jonathan Demme. So, like you, uh, yeah. If you like another film better than one of his, I know that that means you really like. Yeah, it. so it's that's great to hear. It's just, yeah, it feels
0: it feels very different. So, uh, I am going to recommend today uh, a film from 1942. You know, I was thinking about this the big party scene in Crazy Rich Asians and this. Um, this wealth and extravagance and a character kind of going from person to person, all these conversations taking place, and it reminded me of a really great scene, in fact a really great single take in Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. So this is a film about a fortune, a family that is extremely wealthy, and it it really kind of shows the tail end of their wealth. And there's this there's this drama at the center, a uh, relational drama between characters who love each other but are pulled apart because of other family members. The scene that I'm talking about specifically, it happens during a big party and there's this like I mentioned this great long take and the way that it's blocked and put together and we're going from conversation to conversation is really it really is amazing. There's been a lot of talk about how what we have today is not Wells's cut right? And the footage that he originally shot has, has been destroyed, and you can definitely tell there's some, there's some weaker character development in the second half of that movie that I'm, I would assume Wells kind of shored up. But that being said, it's still a, a really good film, and I would encourage people to check it out if you haven't seen it, The Magnificent Ambersons.
1: Yeah, I have I have a hope, Wade, that with Netflix releasing a heretofore unseen Wells film in mm-hmm. the near future, I'm hoping that this kicks off a resurgence of interest in Wells among kind of the the general populace, and maybe just maybe the original cut of the Magnificent Ambersons will somehow resurface. <laughs> I, that that is my pipe dream. Yeah, they'll find uh, the footage that. Has not been
0: destroyed. Now, what's interesting, too, is <laughs> we're going to talk about, hopefully, if everything goes to plan, we're going to talk about Better Call Saul next week. And there's this really great shot in season two around the U.S.-Mexico border that actually reflects the long single take uh, that begins a Touch of Evil, another Orson awesome Welles oh, yeah. film. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't seen a ton of his movies. Of course, really, really, really love Citizen Kane. Our listeners know that. But- hopefully this new Netflix movie that I think hits November 2nd will kind of bring that resurgence like you talked about, and we'll kind of explore that footage, uh, more of his films, and hopefully get that footage back. So I don't know. All we can do is hope, right?
1: Yeah. Well, all we can do is hope, but, you know, stranger things have happened. We keep finding (laughs) new footage of Fritz Long's Metropolis. So keep the dream alive. Keep the dream alive. Well, listeners, we want to thank
0: you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and Christopopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenithan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing.
1: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.